Are we in an epidemic of dyssynchrony, and what does it all mean? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and joining me today is Dr. David Cass, an Abraham and Virginia Weiss Professor of Cardiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and a pioneer in the development and testing of cardiac resynchronization therapy. Dr. Cass hopefully will help us explain and discuss the practical applications and recent developments of cardiac resynchronization as a treatment for heart failure. Dr. Cass, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Please try to explain to me and other primary care physicians what exactly cardiac resynchronization is and isn't. Well, we'll start with a failing heart with a conduction block, like a left bundle branch block. So if you have a left bundle branch block, then the electrical activation of the lateral wall of the heart is going to be delayed. So the initial contraction of the heart will be at the septum, the anterior wall will start moving in, and as that moves in, because the lateral wall still is not contracting, it'll get stretched out, and then the lateral wall will finally contract somewhat later, and because the septum is now already going into early relaxation, it's advanced in its phase, it gets pushed over towards the right side of the heart and towards the RV. So essentially what you've got is cardiac wobble. You can imagine sort of sloshing blood from one side of the heart to the other side. And that's what we're going to call discoordinate or dyssynchronous contraction. That's the dyssynchrony part. Back in the 90s, largely starting in Europe in work that was being done in the Netherlands and in Italy and particularly in France, mostly electrophysiology types began experimenting with the idea that if you simply put a pacemaker on both sides of the heart. So you have a lead now that you're putting on the left ventricle free wall, which is not where we usually would be going. And the other one is going to be in the usual place in the right ventricular septum. And you stimulate both of them at the same time that you could get the electrical signal now to both sides of the heart more or less synchronously and get this wobble to disappear. So the dyssynchrony would be resynchronized. So you're getting rid of the lag time. Right. You improve the coordination of contraction. Now, in a normal heart, if your heart is otherwise healthy and you develop a left bundle branch block or some other conduction block that produces a significant kind of dyssynchrony, the ability of the heart to compensate for that is substantial and doesn't put you into heart failure. And People can have conduction delays, and that by itself is not something that you would necessarily have needed to treat. But in heart failure, where you've already lost so many reserve mechanisms and you are operating often on kind of a shoestring, then one last thing like this turns out to have pretty major implications. And it not only reduces the ability of the heart to eject, because instead of ejecting the blood out through the aorta, you're sort of sloshing it back and forth from side to side inside the chamber. It reduces the efficiency of the heart. So the heart's using more oxygen to do the work that it would be doing, and a failing heart doesn't have that luxury. And it's turned out in a whole slew now of clinical trials that by itself, if you have this problem and you have heart failure, your prognosis is much worse, your mortality rates are much higher. It's sort of become now a well-accepted independent risk factor for bad outcome with people who have heart failure. And in what followed in the really late 90s, but the clinical trials really started in the early 2000s, the big trials, with this resynchronization therapy, 
was that if you use this as a therapy now and then implant kind of a biventricular pacemaker system in patients with heart failure and a conduction block like this, and you treat them, you improve mortality and you improve symptoms and you reduce hospitalization rates. There have been at least two really large clinical trials, the companion trial that was performed really in the United States and what's called the CARE-HF trial that was performed in Europe. And both of these trials have shown really substantial clinical improvement with effects on mortality. And this is really what's led to the approval and pretty widespread use now of this treatment in ideally targeted patient subgroup that has this coordination problem and heart failure. So you were one of the investigators in the companion trial, and the conclusions of that were that in patients with advanced heart failure and a prolonged QRS interval, CRT will decrease the combined risk of death from any cause or first hospitalization, and when combined with an implantable defibrillator, significantly reduce mortality. Can you just tell me what kind of risk reductions you saw in that trial using just the pacemaker group and the pacemaker defibrillator group? Well, the primary endpoint, which was a composite endpoint, showed about a 34% reduction, 34, 35% reduction in just the pacemaker only, and that was a little bit higher, 40% when you combine it with the defibrillator, although I think those two numbers were not statistically different. And then when we looked at overall mortality numbers, with just the pacemaker, it was about 24%, but it just missed statistical significance in companion. And with the combined defibrillator pacemaker, that rose to about 36%, and that was statistically significant. And in the subsequent CARE-HF trial, which was a longer follow-up with CARE-HF, and CARE-HF did not include a defibrillator, it was purely the PACER unit, they found similar types of numbers in terms of the reduction, improvement in mortality, but this was now statistically significant. So I think the fact that the mortality data were borderline and companion was in part the specifics of the trials, but also I think a large part was just we didn't look far enough out. And if you wait a little while longer, then those curves really continued to diverge and the mortality was indeed being improved just by CRT alone, even without the defibrillator. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Focus on Heart Health on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. David Cass, an Abraham and Virginia Weiss professor of cardiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And we're talking about the use of cardiac resynchronization as a treatment for heart failure. David, how common is the use of cardiac resynchronization these days? The companion trial has set the bench for what kind of QRS prolongation you need, and they used 120 milliseconds, which is sort of our upper limit of normal generally. So if you have a QRS duration greater than 120 milliseconds and you're in normal sinus rhythm and you've got dilated heart failure with, I think, an EF less than 30-something percent, then you're a candidate. And at least in studies that have looked at this, this is about a quarter of the heart failure population, the dilated heart failure population. People have been examining other things besides QRS duration, because ironically, while all the original clinical trials were designed with that as an entry criteria, it was the easiest thing to look for to say, yeah, you've got a conduction block. It's been shown repetitively that QRS duration is not very predictive of how you're going to respond when you get the treatment. Not only is it not 
so predictive acutely, but it's also, more importantly, not terribly predictive or really poorly predictive chronically. So that leads me to my next question, which is, can you just look at an echo and predict who's going to respond? Right. So since we think it's the synchrony, you know, then let's just look at it. Let's look at the wall moving. And one of the early studies that we published where we used magnetic resonance technique to show the synchrony was sort of a high-tech way of doing what is now being done mostly with echo and tissue Doppler. We suggested just that conclusion that here's the correlation to cure restoration. It looks pretty poor. Here's a correlation to actual sort of a desynchrony measurement. We had to come up with like an ejection fraction number, but measuring desynchrony. And look, the correlation looks much better. This was an acute, not chronic. And then quite a few groups, Hong Kong and in, and in Europe, Peter Sogard's group and CMU's group in Hong Kong, started looking at tissue Doppler and some echo techniques to try to do this and now look at chronic prediction and the early trials said, yeah, look, it looks like if we could just measure the desynchrony this way, looking at the wall wobbling, that's really giving us a better index as to how these people are going to do. And you have to define what we mean by how these people are doing. It's a combination of clinical sorts of uh, criteria, but most of the work that was done and most of what's been reported use echo metrics themselves. So a patient is considered a responder if, for example, the volume in their heart at end systole gets smaller by 10%, what we call reverse remodeling. You're showing that these hearts are shrinking in size, and that's considered an important benchmark feature of a positive response. There have been only a few studies where they've used traditional clinical endpoints because those tend to require a much larger number of patients to do the trial. So a lot of this correlative work between a measure of desynchrony and how the patient actually does in the end has used these sort of echo parameters. David, I'm out in a suburb practicing, not near an academic center, and my echo readings, I've never seen the term desynchrony. Are the cardiologists out there in general practice, are they aware of this? I think most cardiology practices who would have a contemporary echo machine are able to do the sort of basic tissue Doppler measurements that have become the mainstay of what folks are are looking at, and they can get timing interval differences. And there's been a lot of papers now describing this, certainly in the echo literature. And if you're up-to-date echocardiographer, I think these are all within the realm of standard techniques that are used for other things. The same measurements are used to, for example, assess valve disease or in some cases to just assess systolic and diastolic heart function. So Anyone coming out of a cardiology training and anyone knowing what's going on with echo would be able to do it. I should say, and this gets to where this whole conversation started, you know, is there an epidemic of desynchrony? Is we have to fast forward a little bit because after talking about this as if it's a solved problem, it is not. And in many ways, several recent trials have put kind of the kibosh on what we've been doing. That's sort of where we are now, actually. It's thrown a monkey wrench. So this is all humming along, looking great for a bit. What I reacted to in the editorial with that epidemic desynchrony title was what I was seeing in the literature as an increasing number of studies that was basically now finding desynchrony everywhere. You could measure it all sorts of different ways, whether it was tissue Doppler, people were doing with CT scans, they were doing with nuclear scans. There was a study doing with MRI, where virtually every heart failure patient had desynchrony. And instead of a 20% 
group now, we were up to 70%, and in some cases it looked like 100%. You know, if everyone has the synchrony with heart failure, then not all of it is sort of pacemaker worthy. Not all of it's really going to be treatable with an electrical stimulation system. Then we're kind of over-diagnosing, and we've got to figure out what we're doing. And in that sense, you know, what does it mean? And adding to the complexity of trying to interpret what we're seeing with these motion scans were two large trials that were recently reported. One is the PROSPECT trial, which was a multinational trial where they really were comparing all these different kinds of measures of desynchrony that had now been developed based on ECHO and Doppler. And they had core labs in three different continents, and they had images being shipped to these core labs from all the multiple sites. And the basic question was, we're going to measure desynchrony using all these different measurements, and we're going to ask, does it predict how people do? And the answer basically was no. I mean, none of them ended up looking very predictive at all. And what was even more sort of problematic with the trial was that they sent these images to different core labs. So the same images were being reviewed by different core labs. And there was actually a fair amount of disagreement in the interpretation of the same images as to how much desynchrony was there. So that was sort of an indictment of our current image techniques. We're, we're not quite there yet in being able to come up with a very robust way of saying you do or don't have desynchrony. I think that the take-home message that's come out of late is we're not where we thought we were. There's a bit of going back to the drawing board now to figure out, do we need better measures? Do we need to improve our images? Do we need to come up with better metrics from our images? We're stuck a little bit right now in terms of how to define desynchrony. So before we worry about the patients running off to find the echo lab that is perfect for doing this, there's going to be some more work to finally tell people what it is they should really be measuring and or whether something besides wall motion should be measured. Well, David Cass, thank you very much for coming on and teaching me the current status of desynchrony. You're welcome. Thanks very much. My guest was Dr. David Cass, an Abraham and Virginia Weiss professor of cardiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and a pioneer in the development and testing of cardiac resynchronization therapy. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a focus on heart health on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or you can call us toll-free with comments or suggestions at 888-MD-XM160. And thanks for listening.